Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, the end of September going into October. And today we are going to be talking with Martha Smith, horticulture educator, also with University of Illinois Extension, about spring bulbs in the fall. Well, yes, of course, in spring bulbs because we plant them in the fall. And you know, I can't do this alone, folks. I am joined, as always, every single week by Katie Parker, local foods educator in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hello, Chris. Well, how are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing pretty well. I'm enjoying the weather. Um, warmed up in our office. And it's some good weather to get some inside work done. How about yourself? I am also in, enjoying the uh, the cooler temperatures. The rain that we had, that was really nice. Um, we finally, I think it was a few weeks ago on a show, I mentioned we had some, some plants, some native plants to get in the ground. It hadn't rained for a long time, and the ground was hard as a rock, and we finally got those plants in the ground after a rain, and then it rained again after we got them in the ground, so that was really, really great. Yeah, that's super ideal. That worked out perfectly for you. And now fingers crossed that they survive the winter and they start growing in the spring. And we are also joined by Ken Johnson, horticulture educator, normally in Jacksonville, Illinois, but I believe he's calling from somewhere else today. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris. (laughs) So, Ken, you're on the road right now. Um, well, thank you for, for calling in and, and still joining us. I, is, is No matter what we, we do, Katie, we just can't seem to shake this guy. <laughs> He's like always there. Coming back. <laughs> <laughs> we are happy that you are here, Ken, and please, uh, uh, I'm glad you're pulled over in a parking lot. Uh, uh, watch out for uh, shopping carts, though, so they can, they can get you. I will do that. <laughs> Are you gonna interview some people in the parking lot, Ken? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I can, I can can ask them if they're apple or pumpkin people. <laughs> there oh, you no. go. Oh no, Ken's referring to the article I wrote this last week uh, in the debate of pumpkin spice versus apple in fall flavoring, and you can go to the Good Growing blog and read that and vote. Which one do you like the best? And then, of course, Ken sends me a picture of a pumpkin spiced apple cider which just blows my mind <laughs> i figured you'd enjoy that <laughs> it was pretty good i uh, okay, is that your picture can i post that on the blog i think i'm going to do that yes yeah my wife found some of that and, and bought it that's getting so. posted then yeah well thank you very much well folks not not to delay us any further let's introduce our special guest this week we have martha smith horticulture educator with u of i extension hello martha Hey, hello, guys. How you doing? Well, you you know, as you heard, Ken's in a parking lot. Katie's <laughs> enjoying being in the home office. I'm here in my cold office office. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you, Martha? <laughs> I'm sitting in my home office, just looking out the window. Um, it's starting to change. I'm starting to see a little bit of some some fall color. Some of my maples are changing. Um, but I think it's time to start thinking about bringing in containers and stuff. I, I think we're going to get cold this weekend. I saw the lows coming up. I think it was Wednesday to Thursday night. We're getting down into the 30s. And last night was pretty chilly already. So mm-hmm. it, it's time. Martha, what do you do to prepare for... 
for bringing in those containers? Well, it, de- it depends on what I'm what I'm growing. If it, if they're just annuals or something, I usually just just toss them, clean out the pots, and get ready for next year. But I have a a, a collection of agaves and mangaves, and I've got a few oddball plants, cactus. So what I try to do is about ten days to fourteen days before I bring them in, go out, I clean them up, um, I up pot them if they need to be up potted. And I will add a systemic houseplant insecticide granule um, following the label instructions. Water it in. Usually it's, it's a chemical imidacloprid. And it's a systemic so that the plant can take it in. So if it has any of those nasty critters on it um, and they're, you know, piercing, sucking mouth part, they'll take the chemical in and be killed off. I also like to give them a good spraying of an insecticidal soap both on top of the foliage and underneath the foliage. Now with the agaves I have to be a little careful because some of them have that blue glaucus bloom on them and if you put an oil on it you lose the blue. So it's it's kind of tricky. With my blue ones, I just leave them alone, but any of the others I spray. But for me, the key is getting that insecticide granule into the soil 10 days to 14 days before bringing them in. And, and that way you're not fighting yes. plant insects all winter long. Yes, and these are going in my basement. Um, it's usually low 60s down there in the winter, upper 50s, under some grow lights. And that's where they stay, and I water them, oh, maybe maybe once a month. I mean, I don't have to water them a lot. Uh, then that's it. But I, I used to overwinter so many things, and it just gets to be just too cumbersome, and I don't have the space. Well, we all need greenhouses. We, we all just need one of those in our backyard. So, Martha, we have you on today to talk about spring bulbs and mm-hmm. i i really must admit when I'm, I'm getting all the bulb catalogs you know they started arriving a few weeks ago and you know when i open those up i feel so overwhelmed there's i mean this these are books of just different uh bulb plants that we can put in the ground for next year so for say a beginner like me what are some groups of bulbs that I should start with or how would we break this down? Well, there there are a lot of bulbs out there and I'm always promoting the underused, um, not that well known because people know what a tulip looks like, a daffodil, a crocus, you know, all of, all of those things. Um, and they're all they're all good. But every year I try to grow something different, something that I've never never grown before. Um, but for a beginner, um, you know, the tulips are, are always easy. The only issue is if you have deer, tulips are deer candy. So if you are living with uh, deer, I would switch to daffodil or narcissus. They're, they're interchangeable terms. Uh, they tend to be avoided by a great majority of our wildlife. Um, so those two are always fun and easy. Uh, crocus are easy. Um, 
some of our grape hyacinths. You know, there's some of the more the more common ones, but I like to get into some of the smaller, lesser known bulbs. Some of these bulbs are maybe the size of your fingernail, your index fingernail. They're very small. So it's not a lot of deep planting and, you know, a whole bunch of prep. And you know, I've had some I've had some great successes. I've had some failures, but you know, I figure when I'm buying these minor bulbs, I might be getting a dozen for $6. How much is a cup of coffee now, days? <laughs> I'd rather spend it on, you know, some of these minor bulbs. Um, and by those, it would be like your Scylla, your Cayenodoxa, your Snowberries, some of, some of those things. But those are all really dependable. If you're going to look for a tulip that would do well... I find I look try to look for perennializing tulips, those that are known to come back for us every single year. And you can find that out in most catalogs or just simply call them and say, hey, I want something that's going to be a de- dependable returner for me. And I bought some years ago. Oh, it might have been may have been from Wayside or one of the catalogs. They're still coming back for me. They're still chugging along. But several years ago, um, as a fundraiser for our office, we sold some tulips. And one of them was called Blushing Lady. And we have pictures of that. I think, Chris, you're going to share the link if people want to go see what these, these look like. But Blushing Lady, late bloomer, so usually coming in mid-May for me, about 24 inches tall. It has what they call a lily-shaped flower. And the center is a blush of, of a rose pink, and it fades out to yellow on the tips of the petals. And that has been so dependable for me. Um it's been coming back probably for five, six years, and it's getting to the point where I'm, I'm going to have to divide it. So that's a nice one. Um, I also have a Princess Irene, which is shorter. But, you know, I, I really hate giving out a grocery list of names because then people only go and look for those. And there's so many out there. You know, call the catalog. Talk to the people at the garden center. You know, see what they recommend because they they want you to be happy with them. Uh, another one that I tried years ago was a, a fritillaria, and there's lots of different fritillarias. Some people might be familiar with the crown imperial fritillaria, which is the tall, gets about three feet tall. Sometimes it's called the pineapple flower where the, the, the flowers point downward, the foliage points upwards, and they come in reds and yellows and oranges. Uh, beautiful. But they're a little finicky for us. Um, the bulb is going to be about the size of a softball. And they do have a skunky odor. And people say, plant them and you won't get moles. No, uh, that's not true. Um, but with those bulbs... There's going to be a, a very thick stalk that comes out of them in the spring. And then in the fall, you have to, or in the, over the summer, you have to let the foliage die back. And it always, when that stem finally dies off, there's a depression in that bulb. 
So in our Midwest winter and spring with snow and rain, water accumulates. So years ago, an old-time gardener told me the secret was you have to dig them up every fall and put them on their side. (laughs) It worked. It worked until I forgot to do it one fall. But there's a low-growing fritillaria called the guinea hen flower, and it has a very delicate nodding flower. And if you look closely, it looks like a purple, chocolate-brown checkerboard, almost like a, a, a checker a game board. And it has these distinct little squares. It is just so unusual. And... I planted them many years ago, and they've they've started to naturalize and and self-seed. They're going to be relatively on the the easy side. Um, But yeah, those are just just a few that I like. Um, There's aliums. I'm a big fan of any of the the onions. Uh, Alium schubertii is by far my favorite. This is one that gets the large flowers. In fact, they've been described as kind of a spaceship, you know, cosmic-looking flower because some of them can reach 15, 16, 18 inches across. And they have different florets that come out at different lengths, so you really get an unusual look. And then I like to dry them, and they do wonderfully indoors as dried and people just think they're odd (laughs) so I really like that and um, another one that people might not be familiar with Aramuris which is foxtail lily this gives you a tall spike and the picture I shared was um, spring valley hybrid these will get upwards of four feet tall and their bloom colors range from a yellow to an orange to a coral pink. All of them, I've had good luck here. Um, I'm in western Illinois. Um, All of them are full sun, though. That's the only thing. These are going to be your full sun lovers. But those are just a few. And Chris, just try something new. Just try it. It might become your next favorite or not. But like I said, usually the smaller bulbs aren't very expensive. Well, we might start with tulips and crocus. I love seeing crocus first thing in the spring. It's one of my favorite things mm-hmm. uh, in the spring. Yeah, and you might make the, you want to get the golden crocus. They bloom earlier, and they bloom um, with multiple flowers per stem. Ooh, oh, very then, nice. Then you get into the more of the hybrids, um, but yeah, I believe it's called golden crocus with the with the multiple stems, and and they're very dependable. Very cool. Thank you. What are some of your favorite bulbs, Martha? Well, I just shared, like I said, the Alium. Uh, Schubertii is by far a favorite. You know, these are all spring blooming bulbs that we're talking about, that some of them kind of go into late spring, early summer, and fall is the time to plant them. As, As Chris said, you know, we see them in the spring, and that's when everybody wants them, but they're not available but this time of year it's also great for lilies and in particular 
oriental lilies. I love oriental lilies. They bloom. They can take some shade. They can take... Um, they, they can't take full heavy shade, but, you know, a half and half situation or dappled. And they're extremely fragrant. And place them next to a patio, next to a deck, next to a window. And the fragrance is just wonderful. Um, I have several. I have a Casablanca, which is a white. I just added one called Boogie Woogie last year, which is a kind of a bubblegum pink with a yellow center. And then I have a Scheherazade, which is a very graceful, tall, this one can get upwards of four feet with these beautiful um, pink rose tint of yellow, um, pendulous fragrant blossoms. Uh, the other favorite besides the tulips and the daffodils and the aliums are the martagon lilies. And martagon lilies I discovered about four years ago. And they're, when they come up, they also can tolerate shade. They can take some light shade. Uh, they form like a candelabra look. And you can have 40, 50 of this pen, these pendulous flowers coming off this candelabra uh, type inflorescence. Uh, I started planting those, um, like I said, four or five years ago, after I found out they're hardy to Minnesota. There's a Minnesota Martagon Lily Society. So I thought, hmm, that should do well where I'm at. And I've thoroughly enjoyed them. Now, some of these taller lilies I do have to stake uh, so that they don't fall over. And when they're done, I cut off the blooms, but I leave the foliage as I do with all of my bulbs, my tulips, my daffodils, my crocus, so that that can feed the bulb for next year. So, you know, beyond what we normally think of as spring blooming bulbs, you can get into these later bloomers. Your orientals and your martagons are going to be more into June. And they're perfectly hardy for us, just well-drained soils, and they can take some shade. So you've mentioned some, some plants that do kind of good in that kind of partial shade. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything for kind of more of a, like a woodland garden or kind of a full shade situation that we could use? Well, you know, a lot of times what people think of when they um, think of bulbs in the woodlands are actually more of your ephemerals, your spring ephemerals, which... Some of them are bulbs, some of them are rhizomes, some of them are on roots, but the whole idea is they bloom early before the canopy of the, the woodland you know, fills up and they're in the shade. So there's things like trilliums, there's trout lilies, um, um, sanguisorbia, um, I'm trying to think of a common name, um, I'll think of it in a minute. And all of these come up early. They bloom lovely. Oh, bloodroot. That's what uh, sanguisorbia is, bloodroot. Uh, and they just, their colors just pop because nothing else is out there. It's the end of winter, and we've, <laughs> we're starving for some color. So I always tell people either choose a very early daffodil, very early tulip, um, some of the very early crocus, 
uh, because by the time that canopy fills in, they're done and they've already gone dormant for next year. If you get into the later blooming ones, now you're getting into them trying to bloom under a full canopy in, in the shade and it, it often doesn't work. So a lot of your spring ephemerals will work and um, as I said, the uh, Mardigan lilies do very well. The Oriental lilies do very well. Um, there's, there's, there's several things, which you know brings me to um, a point that we have a program coming up, and it's called Gardening in the Air. It's our virtual Saturday gardening event. And on October 10th, we're going to have Ed Lyons, who is the um, uh, director of uh, Ryman Gardens in Iowa. And he's an author, he's an experienced, experienced gardener. And he's going to be giving a talk on wondrous wildflowers for the shade. So I'm sure he's going to be talking about spring ephemerals and pushing them into summer and going through the seasons. So just something to think about. Uh, there is no registration fee. They just would Google gardening in the air, University of Illinois Extension. Click on the Saturday, October 10th uh, program and under our natives track at 10 o'clock, we have wildflowers for the shape. Well, that sounds like a great event, and we will definitely have a link to that also below in our uh, podcast description. Now, what about um, planting, Martha? We know all these different bulbs that are great to grow, uh, but do we have to plant them a certain way? Is there a top to the bulb? Is there a bottom? Um, I've also been told, like, plant your daffodils with your tulips. It'll keep the squirrels away. Uh, do you have any tips and tricks for us? I have not heard that one, but there's a lot of tips and tricks out there. Uh, planting your bulbs this time of year, uh, I always prefer to plant mine going into October. You know, some years we have a, an Indian summer and things stay warmer a little bit longer. You get those bulbs in the ground too early. What happens in the fall is they actually start to grow. They're going to set their roots in the fall. And then once their roots are established, they're going to start to send up their growing tips. Now, in a normal season, when this happens, we're usually experiencing cold temperatures, both daytime and nighttime. So that growing tip actually stops growing. It senses the colder temperatures. Then it goes through the winter and it goes through its cold process called vernalization. And then depending on that particular bulb's time schedule, it will continue to grow in the spring um, and, and it'll come up. They're planted too early. Sometimes that growing tip will get too close to the surface. So when we do get the cold temperatures and we don't have a snow cover and frost permeates a couple inches into the soil, we can lose them. In fact, I've been noticing on some of the bulb websites, they aren't even shipping uh, until October. <clears throat> and I think that's just so that people don't plant them too too early. Um, what I do, if it's a new bed, um, I like to till it up, uh, add organic matter, um, if, if that's doable. And if not, I just rake out where I'm going to be putting them, dig that 
spot individually up, just kind of loosen the soil, work it up, um, and then plant them according to the depth that's recommended. It's usually two to three times the widest point on the bulb. So most like if you're thinking of a daffodil, that's like six to seven inches. Now people say, is that to the bottom of the bulb? Is that to the top of the bulb? I always say anywhere in the vicinity of, because I don't, if I'm planting a couple hundred, I'm not out there measuring every single one. Uh, bone meal, superphosphate, there's, there's phosphorus, there's things that people will put into the base of the soil that promotes roots. And you put it in the base because um, these elements don't move through the soil. So you want to put them where the roots can get to them. Um, there's bulb foods that I will then mix in to uh, the soil that I'm using to cover the bulbs. Uh, top and bottom, um, some of them are easy, some of them are not. Um, you can look for remnants of last year's roots. You can look for um, growing points that are coming out of the top. Uh, and if you're not sure, plant them on their side. And the plant, the bulb will eventually, eventually write itself. The other thing that I like to use is I use an electric drill. And you can get um, the bit. You can get them, oh, I have one that's 12 inches. I have another one that's 18 inches. And it has an auger on the end. So all I do is just poke that down to a depth that I think is comfortable, throw a little phosphorus on the bottom, put the bulb in, and cover it up. And with that, you can get a lot of bulbs planted very quickly. If you don't have the electric drill, um, first of all, don't use a wireless because soils are too hard. <laughs> in some places, it won't work. You can get one of those cone planters where you push it down into the soil to the depth that you want. Um, or you can excavate your whole area where you're going to plant and then lay the bulbs out in the pattern that you want and cover it over. Usually this time of year we don't have to worry about fall rains. Um, but if it has been very dry and it's not in the forecast, I would water them in and then just let them be. And be surprised next spring. So folks might wonder, like, oh, we really need to invest in a, 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 like a bulb auger, you know, or a, or a tool. And I would heartily agree because I have seen it happen, you know, first year someone plants, you know, half a dozen. And next year it's a dozen. And then after that, it's 50 and then hundreds, and then <laughs> then people like just love doing this, and they'll be planting thousands and thousands of bulbs every fall. It's wild. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And for some people, well, you go to oh, what can I? Uh, Mackinac Island up in Michigan. We were mm -hmm. there, and we were there in the fall. They treat all of their bulbs as annuals. Yep. They. We were there. They had dug them all out. They had reworked the beds, and they were literally planting probably tens of thousands around there. And then in the spring, they just cut them all up and don't let them grow, dig them up. Uh, and, you know, people are appalled, but, boy, that look every year that's a little different of a display is, is, is absolutely beautiful. 
Oh, it's amazing. I love, and then I, I know a lot of landscapers, they act, they, they treat their spring bulbs as annuals and mm-hmm. they're beautiful displays that you can put together with that. Yes, you can. And, you know, up where we are, we can't grow, you know, camellias and azaleas and all those things that they can grow in the south. But guess what? They can't grow um, spring blooming bulbs because their winters aren't cold enough. So they have to purchase, now this is in the deep south, pre-chilled bulbs. Or they have to chill them on their own so that they get that vernalization, which then sets the flower bud. So... They might have camellias, but we got spring blooming bulbs. Ha! <laughs> the other question that some people ask is, what about critters? What about critters digging them up and and eating them? Um, it was mentioned before planting your um, tulips with your daylilies to, I think, fool <laughs> squirrels into passing them by, which, which which could work since daffodils are not a preferred critter food. There are some drenches that you just, it's a taste uh, drench and you you dip the bulbs in there. It coats them with a a flavoring that's either bitter or acidic or or hot. So if they do get dug up, they're just going to bite it and not devour it so you can replant it. Others I've heard for years you plant them in a little piece of steel wool, just plain, clean steel wool. Um, I've heard, you know, people trying cages around them. Uh, So, you know, there's lots of things that are out there. um, But if you really are dealing with, you know, some critter problems, you might want to just stick with the known bulbs that, tend not to be eaten and that that would be a lot of your daffodils that you could plant and they're beautiful you can have a daffodil display early spring to midsummer so that's the recommendations i have for critters well that was some great information about growing spring bulbs so you better get on top of that folks and get them ordered now and in the ground but this is also a question and answer show from you, the listener. So Martha, our first question comes from Knox County and this homeowner wants to have a blooming lawn. So what do we recommend for them to incorporate to have more flowering plants that perhaps they can mow? You know, that's always been a question and you're really not gonna have anything that's going to bloom the entire season. Uh, Because you're constantly mowing, you're constantly cutting them off. Um, In the spring, you can put down some of your very, very early spring uh, bloomers that are are short, that are low. I'm thinking of, oh, the Hyanodoxa or the squills uh, that are only going to get maybe three, three and a half inches tall. Um, Pushkinia is another one that you could plant. And by the time they're done blooming and their foliage is starting to die back is usually when we're um, starting to think about mowing. Now, years ago, uh, I tried this, and I tried a little bulb called Iffion, and I ordered 50 of them, and I was going to plant them in my lawn. Like I said, these are about the size of my index fingernail. They're very small, and I got them and then I said oh how am I going to plant these 
So I was like, I could just scatter them and see what happens. So I actually sat out in my backyard with a crowbar and thunked in a spot, pulled it back, just opening up the soil about an inch, and I planted them. And it didn't really work. <laughs> so that was my my attempt. But I have some of the others, the Pushkinia, the Squill, the Cayenodoxa, that have just spread naturally in parts of my yard. And I don't mind them because they die back by the time I'm mowing. I really can't think of anything that is going to be blooming in your lawn that you could mow to your desired height. Now, you know, blooming lawns are also dandelions, and dandelions do, you know, have their merits, or some of the violets that we um, sometimes get creeping in our lawn. <laughs> and ground ivy has a blue flower. So, you know, when you say blooming lawn, to me, it's it's the early spring bulbs that are that are coming up. Spring bulbs and creeping Charlie, gotta love them. <laughs> yes, what a combination. Um, there was a, another question that you had um, shared with me, and that was overwintering canna and calla lilies. Uh, now, both of these plants are grown in the warmer climates where they don't have to dig them up. But for us, it, it is recommended. Um, usually, uh, I like to wait until we start to have some cool temperatures, maybe a very, very light frost. And then you're going to dig them up gently because they can be a little bit fragile and can snap and break. I like to use like a potato fork and start, oh, maybe 8 or 10 inches away from the, the clump and slowly lift them. Then I'm going to let them dry. And you can lay them out in a shed or in your basement. And as the foliage you know, starts to dry, you cut back to about two or three inches. And then all you have to do is just put them in a cool, dark spot in your house, in your basement, any place that doesn't freeze. That's what, that's what you want to, want to avoid. So a basement that's only, you know, 40 to 55 degrees, that would be fine. Uh, check on them over the uh, winter to make sure some of them maybe didn't dry down completely. So you might have some rotting going on. Uh, and every few years, you're going to have a huge clump. They can easily be divided. You just want to make sure that when you divide, you have a good ratio of growing tips to to um, a root system. Now, calla lilies, calla lilies have become more popular in the past couple of years. And I've had people use them in containers and simply bring the container in and put it in a cool, dark spot. And then next spring, they'll dig them up, check them out, and replant them. So, you know, really, either way, digging them up completely or leaving them in their container would would work just as well. So our next question comes from McDonough County. And we are seeing a lot of white fly, uh, not only on houseplants, but also just out in the landscape. So... Ken, um, why are we seeing so many white flies? Should we be doing anything right now about that? 
I, I can agree with you on the uh, lots of white flies on the landscape. I was out uh, this last weekend doing some yard work, and every time you brush up against a plant, it's almost like it's snowing, um, at least in my yard with all the white flies. Um, and I think there's probably a couple reasons that could be. Uh, one, we're getting late into the year. So those populations have just been building all summer. We're kind of at that, uh, that peak population, so to speak. Um, probably another reason is that they, they tend to prefer hot, dry conditions. Um, at least kind of the Jacksonville area, um, we got pretty warm and, and pretty dry uh, kind of towards the end of the summer there. So that just kind of had that, that, that real nice environment for them to, to kind of reproduce um, even more. As far as doing anything this time of year, um, especially for your landscape plants, I really wouldn't worry about them. Um, we're getting pretty close to the fall. We're going to be starting getting some frost here probably within a few weeks, if not sooner. Um, so all those, those white flies will be killed that most of those plants are going to start dying off anyway. Uh, so it's not really something you need to worry about. Um, like Martha mentioned in the beginning, though, if you do have them on house plants, you want to make sure you're treating for those, um, making sure they're not on there, washing them off, whatever you have to do to get those off of there. Because if you bring them inside, uh, more than likely you're not going to have any of those natural enemies that would normally uh, eat them. So those populations can really explode when you don't have uh, those natural enemies around. So this other question, and we got this from Kendall County, and they're asking about preparing their landscape bed now. So it sounds like they're putting in a new landscape bed, but they're not planting it. So what is mm -hmm. the best thing to prepare it now to then be planted next spring? Fall's a great time for your bed prep. Uh, what I usually do is, if it's a brand new bed, I, I get out a rope or a garden hose, and I lay out the dimensions to see, okay, is this the size I want? Is it going to fit everything that, that I have in my mind that I want to, you know, put in here? And once I get that and I like the curve and I've checked the curve to make sure I can mow it because sometimes we have these dramatic twists and turns and it, you can't mow and it becomes a maintenance headache. Um, from there, you have to think about removing the turf, um, the turf and any existing vegetation because that's a competitor and boy, if anybody has ever planted directly into turf, they've lived to regret it because that grass will just keep coming back, keep coming back. So you can lift the sod. You can rent a sod cutter. Uh, people ask about putting plastic over it. And we actually did a trial up at our Quad City office. And we put down clear plastic and black plastic and then we didn't do anything. Um, it was one of the coolest summers we ever had, and the cool, the clear just acted like a greenhouse and stuff started to grow. So it just wasn't hot enough. So we covered the whole thing with black, and by next spring, now this is where you have to, it's, it's a waiting game. Start it in um, the spring, it's gotta sit all summer, all winter, but the next spring when we took it off, that soil was clean and then we just worked in some organic matter at that time to to plant um, you can also put down um, a grass killer something like a glyphosate which is an active ingredient in many of our, our grass killing products just read and follow the label instructions and make sure that you have the product for home and garden because there's some products out there that have um, 
other chemicals in them that actually will prevent regrowth for a certain period of time. And when you think about it, this is for, you know, fence rows or driveways or places where you don't want grass coming back right away. So just, you know, that's just some of the options. And then I, I till it all in. And I add compost. I, I feed my soil. I add compost every time I'm planting, every time I'm dividing, every time I'm, you know, doing something new in the garden. And I till it in. And then just let it set for the winter. Now, the other thing you can do in the fall is you can do what the farmers do. And they will bring in relatively fresh manures. And they're going to till that in, but then it's going to set over winter so that that fresher manure actually starts to break down. It starts to go into its natural components, more of a earthy smelling crumbly material and it's going to start to learn lose the urea acid that's in there that when it's really really fresh can harm our plants. Now cattle are grazing animals and people say oh they bring in weed seeds. You already have a lot of weed seeds in your garden. Uh, the, this, this weed seed bank is, you know, there's no end to it. So what I do in the spring, if I do get that first flush of green, I just till it in. Just kind of use it as a cover crop. Till it in and, and then I plant. So fall's a great time. And, you know, sometimes it's better to prep in the fall because we might have a very rainy, wet spring and it might delay you from doing those things um, next spring. Now, I think the other part of that was on the established beds, what could they be doing now? Uh, I really don't do a whole heck of a lot with my established beds. I cut back those that I know are going to reseed. Um, Northern sea oats, blackberry lily, we all have lists of those that recede. But I leave pretty much everything else up so that it can catch the snow and, you know, build up, um, you know, a good leaf base to keep the soil moist. Um, so there are those things. Or if they haven't added compost, they could actually do what's called top dressing at this time. In between your plants, you can rake away your mulch and then get some compost and put a couple inches over the bare dirt and then spread your mulch back over it. It's not the best way to add organic matter to your soil, but over time, your microorganisms are going to find it. They're going to start working on it. Every time you dig in that garden or work in that garden, you're incorporating it. So that's a great project to do either in the fall or um, in the spring, but now's a great time. Those are some great tips, Martha. And you know, yeah, I got to get on the on the ball here and get my lawn going, get my landscape beds ready for next year. <laughs> so, oh, the list gets longer every day. Hey, this next question as uh, comes from McDonough County. We'll throw this to Katie here. Um, tomato season. They want to know. Is it over? Is it fried green tomatoes for dinner tonight? What should they do with all the, the tomatoes left on the plants? What do you think, Katie? Well, hopefully they got to enjoy some ripe tomatoes. Um, but yes, as we do approach the cooler night temperatures, um, we're getting closer to that, 
that frost time um, throughout the state of Illinois. And so it's important to keep an eye on your tomatoes and make sure that we're not having any um, chilling damage to the tomatoes. So oftentimes when temperatures are below 50 degrees, uh, we can have some chilling injury, which can cause some de decay um, to the tomatoes, which can cause some issues uh, leading to some rot and stuff. Um, so if you would prefer to keep the tomatoes, um, you can pick the green tomatoes. So the lighter green that look like they're about to turn red, um, you can pick those and bring those in. You can use them for fried green tomatoes. I've never actually made fried green tomatoes, um, but it sounds like the perfect condition for them. Or you can uh, ripen them inside. And so uh, in previous podcasts, we've discussed this. Uh, some options are you can keep them inside with the warmer temperatures. A lot of times we'll put them in our windowsill or you can put them in a paper bag. You can get it like a paper grocery bag or even just a lunch bag. Depends on how many you have. And then you can put an apple or a banana inside the bag with the tomatoes and that will help to ripen them. Um, a lot of times too you'll see like those smaller dark green tomatoes they are not developed as far along and so those can be more difficult to get to mature so you, know, you may not want to pick those as they may not turn red. My mom would make fried green tomatoes when I was little. I don't remember what they taste like because I think I was at a stage where I put ranch dressing on everything and uh, <laughs> they must have been delicious because I had ranch dressing on them. Um, it looks like there is uh, another question here and it's from Warren County and <clears throat> they're wanting to know if she can move some of her lilies now or should she wait until the spring. Now's a good time because They've gone into their dormancy. They're just starting to regrow. Plus, you might have a better idea where they are. Um, so it's, it's a good time. Again, you would want to do it where you're not digging right directly into the bulbs. You want to take like a potato fork or some tined um, fork and go out from where you think the clumps are and just very gently... Um, start to lift them. If they've been in there a while, don't be at all surprised if you're going to have to divide them. Some bulbs will um, spread by their little bulblets much more uh, quickly than others. So, you know, don't be at all surprised. Then just, just replant them. If you really think about it, that's what the bulb growers are doing. As soon as they go into their dormancies, they're digging them up packaging them and shipping them all over the world so fall's a great time it's a great time well folks that was a lot of great information thank you so much for submitting your questions to the podcast and to your local extension offices uh, i want to remind everybody that martha uh, will be putting on her virtual gardening event gardening in the air october 10th 
Yes. So come learn about natives, fruits, and ornamentals. It's a lot of different classes within those different tracks. Yes, registration will close um, a week from tomorrow, which I think is the 7th. So they would have to get their um, registration in quick. And going back to when I was talking about spring ephemerals, I said sanguisorbia, and it should have been sanguinaria, which is blood root. I just wanted to correct myself. Oh, and that's that's important to do. Someone would be looking up sanguisorbia, and they would be very perplexed. So. <laughs> Sanguinaria blood root. <laughs> it's sanguine, good. like blood, because that means blood. Okay. Uh, a beautiful uh, native spring ephemeral. I love that one. Have some really cool pictures of that when you cut it, and this, that red orange sap runs out mm -hmm. very neat. Yeah, that's also um, another spring ephemeral does that called the celadine poppy, mm -hmm. and that's the yellow woodland poppy. They also will give off a, 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 a kind of an orangey red sap when you cut them. Very nice. Well, Martha Smith. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat about spring bulbs and helping us answer these questions. Well, Chris and Roth, it was fun. Well, we will be having you back here soon. And remember, folks, check the uh, the links down into the, the description for gardening in the air and for photographs of a lot of the bulbs that Martha talked about today. The Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson. The show is edited by me, Chris Enroth. Ken Johnson, Katie Parker, co-host of the Good Growing Podcast. Thank you so much for being here this week. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Martha, for being on. Thank you, Chris and Katie. Do it again next week. And next week we shall. We will be talking with Dwayne Friend about soils. Listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. And as always, keep on growing.